But Weekend Variety Wireless. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. A special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. I entreat you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's a lot of complimentary and helpful stuff there, especially for our astronomy section. It's pretty easy to follow and you can email the program, the Facebook page for messages and, you know, all that sort of guff. Another edition, if you didn't know, of this Weekend, weekend Variety Wireless of a Sunday and it'll start at eight o'clock and tomorrow and tomorrow night a really disturbing story that it is from the new zealand international film festival look it's a great excuse to talk about some amazing subject matter in northern ireland there are families that are still so much more loyal to what were the previous militia the sectarian militia far more loyal to them than the police and authorities that a mother would take her son to be shot by them rather than go to the police. Here's the director. They would never leave, much rather bring their children to be shot than leave that community. So they're very loyal to it. It's a hell of a story. And also a warning from the director. Uh, about consequences maybe of a hard Brexit, she explains. If a hard Brexit goes ahead, if there's a no-deal Brexit, it's very likely there will be a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that would give those people an excuse to reignite a war. I do feel, I think Tinderbox is correct, you feel like people need a conflict and this would, this would be a good excuse. Sinead O'Shea there, the director of the movie that says what's inside it. A mother sends her son to be shot. That's tomorrow night, late, so the kids won't get frightened, 10.30. Science this hour, uh, Grant Christie with astronomy, late at this hour, but next up, a replay, an edited replay, actually, of uh, the thing with Paul Callahan. Not with Paul Callahan, about Paul Callahan, one of our greatest scientists, and, yeah, fairly celebrated as well. I was spouting some of my left-wing opinions which I'd acquired as a Victoria University student because I think I was in my third season at the works and I, I was standing next to a big Croatian guy uh, his name was Mr and he put his knife straight to my throat and he held it there and he said I f***ing to kill you you bastard <laughs> and uh, I, I had this vivid memory of um, the, the feel of this against my carotid artery and I just sort of backed off. That story after the break. The weekend variety wireless. On at the New Zealand International Film Festival, a big fat excuse to celebrate a scientist. Paul was as close to a renaissance man as we're likely to find in the modern world. He of course was an absolutely committed and extraordinarily knowledgeable physicist. Uh, but he could talk to people about anything. His phrase, make New Zealand a place where talent wants to live, is, has become a kind of a motto. In many countries, I think he would have, you know, we would have had him on, the, on a postage stamp or on a, you know, on our currency. His impact in a huge array of different types of scientific fields has been massive. He was well respected for his science, but on the other hand, he was a passionate New Zealander. 
So I'm a kind of a contrary individual in some ways. I'm a, I'm a mixture of, um, you know, tendencies pulling in different directions and there's a sense of paradox uh, 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 that I live with all the time that way. And the only way I can satisfy that is by um, being broader than just one aspect of my profession. That's the introductions by way of testimonial for the celebration of Paul Callahan. People who listen to this programme may know him, but I would say, in general, I don't think there is a larger gulf in human existence than the appreciation of science and how much we take it for granted. I don't think there's a larger gulf. Joining us, the maker of the movie in celebration of Paul Callahan, Shirley Horrocks is the director. He should be on money and be better known. This movie will go some way to making him more part of the public imagination. It's said that he'd be better known overseas than here, but is, is it really more a matter of he's well-known in the disciplines for which he's famous, and that's in physics? In physics, he'd, he'd be a household name amongst physicists, right? Absolutely. He won the Ampere Prize in 2004, which to him would have been the most important prize he could have won because it was given by his peers. Mm. But that wouldn't have made particular waves mm. in New Zealand. No, we can't recall the Ampere Prize winner for the year before, can we? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> OK, what sort of character was Paul Callahan? He was an ebullient sort of character, tons of energy, loads of curiosity, and I think that's what made him the man he was. He was open to people's ideas... If he thought they were sensible, but they had to be executed, as his secretary, his management um, person said, if it wasn't done perfectly, well, mm. that wasn't uh, so good. What did he do? Why did Pip physicists go, wow, Paul Callahan? Well, Paul was a multifaceted character, and his area was nuclear magnetic resonancing, otherwise known as NMR, which I had to learn about. As soon as I realised that MRI was nuclear magnetic resonancing, but it wasn't called that because of the nuclear word. People, isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Because people don't want to think they're going to be nuked when they're having this examination thing. But it's really because the molecules are dancing in a particular way that sends out information mm. that can tell doctors a lot about what's happening inside the body. Right. But Paul used oh. nuclear magnetic resonancing in different ways to understand what was happening in a molecule which could give a lot of information to scientists. For instance, one thing that he did, soft butter. Oh, right. Because the information that he gained by his particular science could tell them a lot about what they should do. Okay. When did you get all this interview material? He's, he's dead and how long has he been dead for? He died in 2012, right. March 2012. Right. How and when did you get all this interview material with Paul? Well, some I got myself when I interviewed him for a film I made in 2011. I did the interviewing. Mm. And that's when I thought, wow, you know, <laughs> I didn't know anything about this guy until until I made this documentary. And he knew he was perilously sick at that oh, time? Oh, yes, yes. He was just about to take off to spend three months with his family in Cambridge mm. in England. He wasn't very well but mustered up enormous amounts of energy for the interview. Mm. But luckily in 2010, the McDiamond Institute, of which he was the founder... Named uh, after one of New Zealand's Nobel Prize Exactly, Alan McDiamond. Sorry, chemist. 
Fortunately, the McDiamond Institute had the foresight to ask Gaylene Preston to do an interview with him over two days. Mm -hmm. So I had all this interview material. His background, do you spot anything that would have hinted of, of greatness? The formative years in the 50s, the greatest thing about him that indicated that he was going to do something really interesting was his curiosity. Mm. Everybody, all his teachers, commented on his curiosity. He had to know exactly what was what, how things worked, and indulged in a lot of experiments with his friends. And this is in the documentary. We've reenacted some parts of his childhood because his childhood was very important to him. He often spoke about it and he wrote about it in a small book that was published by Bridget Williams. Mm. So I wanted to bring to life something of what made Paul Callahan, Paul Callahan. And his brother also, Jim Callahan, talks about what Paul got up to. Um, in his childhood with Richard Green, who is also in the documentary, a school, a mm. school friend uh, who took part in these experiments, which blew up his father's garage and nice. stuff like that. Uh, pretty much boys' stuff, I'm afraid. Women can blow things up. Oh, yes, they can. Just tend not to get chemistry sets. That's right. In the 1950s. Yes, I wish I'd had one. Yeah. Okay, but a 60s kids, student protests, that sort of thing, cultivated a leftist outlook. Yes. Got into arguments. There's a marvellous argument he had at the freezing works, wasn't there? I remember when I just started university, I was spouting some of my left-wing opinions, which I'd acquired as a Victoria University student, because I think I was in my third season at the works. And I, I was standing next to a big Croatian guy. His name was Mr. And he put his knife straight to my throat. And he held it there and he said, I to kill you, you bastard. <laughs> And uh, I, I had this vivid memory of, um, of the, the feel of this against my carotid artery and I just sort of backed off and uh, often joked that I learned a little bit of respect for other political opinions at that stage, you know. <laughs> it's a remarkable he, little story, It's isn't a it? wonderful story and he tells it so well. Yeah. He remained really compassionate his entire life. It seemed to be quite a strong suit of his. Yes, he was a, definitely was a people person. One of the stories that somebody that worked with him said was that she'd received news that her husband had been diagnosed with cancer. I think it was when Paul was president of the Royal Society, so she let Paul know that um, she mightn't always be available because she might be at the hospital. And Paul immediately left the university and came down to the Royal Society just to see how she was. And this is how he was with people. He was a very compassionate man. Mm. To have a discussion face to face. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. rather than flick off an email or something. And there's another story of um, his outward compassion. I mean, people can be compassionate in thoughts and expression, but in deeds, that's where I think is a great calibration of if you're compassionate really or not in your deeds we had a russian student and he applied from russia to um to his phd with paul a year or so later that student's father died in st petersburg quite young and of a heart attack and quite unexpectedly and paul shows you what i mean about his compassion for people he he not only paid for his return fares but he went downtown and spent just about the whole day arranging his travel so this student wouldn't have to do it. And he was great like that. That's a nice little story, isn't it's it? It's a great story. 
Okay. He felt strongly about New Zealand losing in the brain drain as well. How many here have either siblings, brothers or sisters, or daughters or sons living overseas? <laughs> oh, oh, now half of you. Now let me try something else. How many of you got grandchildren living overseas? A, a significant number of you, yes. Enough that... I mean, I want to read my grandson... I want to hold the, the boy. I don't want to read him on Skype. Why is my grandson living overseas? There's nearly a million New Zealanders living overseas. Why? Because young New Zealanders get jobs and they, they earn high money and, and they're, it's very, they're very prosperous. They go to Australia and have a 25% higher income than here, not because the tax rates are wrong, not because of the Resource Management Act. It's just that Australia's richer. Why? Because they could dig another hole in the ground and sell it to China. David Longy had it right. New Zealand's destiny was to be a theme park and Australia's destiny was to be a quarry. Losing our best to overseas. Yes. What needs to change then? What would have made Paul Callaghan satisfied? Fill in a bit of background. Paul was always a very entrepreneurial scientist. So he could see when something had a commercial future and scientists would come into his lab and see what he was doing in his own work and say, oh, that's interesting, we'd like one of those. And he'd say, oh, well... We'll make you one and sell it to you. Mm -hmm. So that led on eventually to the starting of a company called Magritech, which produced portable NMR equipment. Now, NMR equipment had been huge and cost about $2 million. He and his team came up with equipment that was portable and cost in the range of $100,000. He felt he wanted to see 100 companies like his that would be contributing to the New Zealand economy because he felt that, OK, to boost the New Zealand economy, if we boosted tourism, we would boost all the side effects mightily and so forth. Okay. This could be criticised as a hagiography as well. He's an imperfect person. Right. This was very much on my mind when when I made the documentary. Hagiography, sorry, Liz, is a big, fat, flash word for a sucky-uppy thing. <laughs> to put it more politely, Graham, <laughs> a history of a saint. And yeah. Paul Callaghan was certainly not a saint. He liked to have fun. He enjoyed a good party. And I think we see, we see this. Oh, well, that's in, a good thing. In the, but in everyone thinks that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. Okay, but I mean, it shows he's human. Oh, yeah. I mean, he doesn't have to be bad to be human, does he? He no. doesn't have to be naughty to no. be human. Okay. But negative sides to him. Well, I think when I was doing the documentary... When I asked people questions about Ball, I always said, now, I am not making a hagiography, so I really want to get a full rounded picture mm. of the man. And I did get two or three very good statements, which are in the documentary, about mm. the fact that Paul would listen to people, he would listen to their ideas, and he would say, okay, but if it wasn't done perfectly then it was a different matter. He expected perfection. Mm. And if somebody came up and proposed something that didn't work, it was a different story. So, But apparently once that incident was over, everything was back on a normal footing. Okay. It's Richard Blake and Kate McGrath. They talk about times they fell foul yes. of him. Yes, Yeah. Were they quite careful about what they said, do you think? Did no, I don't. loose? No, I don't think they were careful. I was very pleased. I thought it was very generous of 
Richard and Kate mm. to make the statements they made. Mm. Okay. He was a nice mix of the science and the arts, or at least could appreciate them, and um, thought it had a, a great value. Yes. Um, I mean, he saw that they were both creative, sets of creative minds working on problems. When Glenda Lewis proposed the Our Angels OK book, he jumped at it with alacrity. Glenda Lewis from New Zealand Royal Society. Yes, she was at, with the New Zealand Royal Society. She's now works privately, mm. but, but also with the McDiamond Institute, but she's a... And formerly the Ellen Wilson Centre. Yes, absolutely, and she's a, a great person. Mm. One of these unsung people that do... She gets things done. She gets things done. She does. Good on you, Glenda. Paul Callahan was the crazy person who said pest-free 2050 before John Key, didn't he? Absolutely. Now, I have to say that Doc had proposed this idea a while, a while before, but it was Paul Callahan. he saw the benefits that it would bring to New Zealand. And that it could be done. And that it could be done. And he called it New Zealand's Apollo shot because he said it's a crazy it's a crazy idea, but it can be done. It has a discrete goal, yes. you know, when you've done it. Yes. And he saw what was done in Zealandia, the marvellous reserve in Wellington that has ex managed to exclude these predators. So um, it was because Paul took the idea and ran with it in the mainstream mm. that I think the government then came up with the predator-free 2050 mm. idea, which is happening. And, yeah, Taranaki is first cab off the rank. They'll put a flag up the mast when it's done. Yes. So I hope Envy will take over and Northland will be next. We'll see. It needs a bit of work. It's getting a bit of cash. <laughs> and there's weight given to something when he says it. Because of the sir in front as well. That helped. He thought about, oh, do I have a sir or don't I? Because he was offered one. Yes. Well, he thought if he speaks for his students, if he writes them references and so forth, it might have more impact if he puts the sir. I really warmed to that because my, my husband's exactly the same. He's got a doctor in front of his name. Mm. But... He only uses it if he writes references for, for students and he still gets asked to do that, even right. though he retired a little while ago. It helps your team. It helps your team. Yeah, it's not a selfish thing. It's mm. not a, oh, look at me. Mm. Yeah, it ha yeah, I can totally understand that. And anyhow, why not accept an award? Now, I seem to recall when he was very, very sick, as desperate human beings I want to do, did he dabble in some woo, some anti-science stuff? Um, Paul, how should I put this? Because um, when I heard about it, I went, oh, no. Really? Yeah. Wasn't that vitamin C mega thing he was yes. trying? Yes. Um, Paul had great faith in the treatment he was receiving medically, but he also was interested in the possibility that vitamin C treatment could help so he he tried it and as he had a blog he used to write about it in his blog but vitamin c taking vitamin c didn't work for him and he was at great pains to say that in his blog 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean... But this is a kind of why not, rather it than was a, a testimonial endorsement. No, it was a why, why not try it, and unfortunately it didn't work for right. him, and he wrote about it. Okay. His legacy. How's he made his mark? I think he's a role model as a great New Zealander, a world specialist in his field, but also someone who cared deeply about making New Zealand a better place. His words, a place where talent wants to live. Mm. And he was involved in many aspects of that, such as the economy and the environment. We've talked about predator-free New Zealand. Mm. Martin Rees, Lord Martin Rees, said that he... Astronomer General. Astronomer General in the UK said that he was an absolute role model of what a scientist should be because Ma- uh, Martin Rees was also a great commu- is a great communicator. Mm. It takes great pains to try and communicate science to a wide audience. For the sake of a great New Zealander, this is an extra incentive, I think, to give us more will to push on for predator-free 2050. Think of Paul Callaghan. So let's get on to it and... Let's make New Zealand a smarter place scientifically. And let's reduce, as I began with, that gulf between the appreciation and our reliance on science because it goes so underappreciated. I think that science and the arts are the two most important things in life, Mm. in my opinion. Shirley Horrocks. I've forgotten about the movie now because it's just been lovely to talk about Paul Callaghan. Yes. That's terrible of you, isn't it? It's on at the New Zealand International Film Festival. This has just been a big wonderful excuse to talk about the life and work and character of one of our finest scientists, Paul Callaghan. Are they proud of him in Whanganui, where he grew up? I imagine so. They've been wanting to have an event there, but the festival doesn't go there. So I guess Palmerston North's the closest. He's going to make an exception for his hometown. We'll have a screening at some time anyway outside of the festival, I've promised. Oh, good for you. Shirley Horrocks, the maker, thank you. One of the values of science is that knowledge is never to be feared. There's an inherent, if you like, faith in science that knowledge per se is never to be feared. And for me, approaching my disease, I've looked at it that way. I've wanted to learn as much about it as possible, what's happening inside me. And to be interested in it is to overcome the fear. I just find that works for me. I'm not saying it would for everybody. But it is part of the way that a scientist tends to look at the world. Nature is violent and cruel and, you know, people in Christchurch know that course uh, lives can be cut short very very quickly and that's the pattern of things so to have life at all to have life every day is uh, something to be uh, you know in- enjoyed and treasured astronomy today with dr grant christie is there an astronomer in the house we need one for this particular session oh hello graham how are you good grant christie <laughs> joining us for astronomy news uh, and you've just heard uh, an interview with the director of Paul Callahan, Dancing with Atoms. It's a great tribute um, to uh, one of our fine scientists. Did you ever know Paul, C- Paul Callahan? I never personally met him. I heard yeah. him give talks. It was He was a really impressive guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, astronomy news. We have various complimentary links on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, which will... Um, help along if you can go there you can see some of the things that we're talking about but this works without as well of course but uh, let's talk about the Ryugu 
asteroid. It looks like a UFO. We talked about it last week, and now it's, we, we can really see close up. Yeah, they're starting to release uh, new pictures, uh, the latest one on the website uh, that I've been able to see so far is taken from only six kilometres away. So it's really closing in. This object's about one kilometre across, so that's pretty close. Uh, and they're going to get closer and gradually take images of the whole thing. So hopefully before long we'll be able to show you a sort of a, a, a full global picture of this unusual object. As you say, it's sort of strange. It's sort of almost like a cubic crystal shape. Mm. Uh, it's not the sort of rounder shape we're expecting. But having said that, most small bodies in the solar system aren't round. They don't have enough gravity to do that. So mm. they can be very elongated gated and so on but this one well anyway nobody ever drew a picture of an asteroid hypothetical one that ever looked like this so no. it's that's the thing about visiting them you find out what nature's really about yeah um and also the array of asteroids that we have gotten up close to to have a screw tap there, yeah. there are quite a few well, aren't there are a lot i mean the uh you know the, there's only one they left off that that was um uh the um uh, Vesta, which oh, is a right. very large thing, it would be huge on that scale. But it so, looks like a planet. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's almost it, it almost made the cut and became a dwarf planet. But it's uh, Ceres is the other one is is a dwarf planet in mm. the asteroid belt. But these are all the ones that spacecraft have visited so far, and uh, we have good imagery of. So it's pretty amazing. It's it's an amazing list of these objects. Mm. And uh, you know, of course, you think about this that in the future, you know, humans could well be you know extracting sort of rare minerals and material from these objects. And once they can figure out how to move them into an orbit closer to Earth and uh, get the stuff back, these are going to be a resource for humanity in the future. All right. Wouldn't it be easy just to push one and make it hit, hit, the Earth? hit in the middle of Australia <laughs> and say, hello, well, we've got another you know, mine? You'd have to take, do a lot of digging to get your, right. your stuff back. But, yeah, they, they can, they're talking about it. I mean, NASA did have a project to actually go to asteroids uh, go and, and bring one into back and put it into orbit around the moon where they could then sort of, had, it was more accessible for repeated exploration of it and working out how you're really going to extract the minerals from it and mm. do it. But there's a lot of minerals that are vital to our uh, economy and used in cell phones and all sorts of new technologies that are very rare on Earth. You know, things like iridium and those sort of elements that are rare on Earth but common and, and abundant in, in asteroids. So that's a... Uh, a uh, powerful motivation to go looking for these and sort of study them. Okay, it's been a wonderful time for just naked eye viewing of the planets. You get a real perspective of where you are on the Earth and how we fit in the solar system, really, when you have a look at all the planets, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, you know, just, we've just been through a time, it's just coming to an end now, where we had all the naked eye planets strung across the sky from the west to the east and you could see them at one time. And that's relatively unusual. Like every decade or so you might get sort of a, uh, an alignment like that. Um, often it will be might be in the morning sky where mm. most people don't get up to see it, but when it's in the evening sky and you've got Venus and the bright planets and Mars near opposition, um, you know, it's a, it's quite a rare lineup of all of naked eye planets. And Mercury is the first to fall off the list, though. Yeah, it's Mercury's right now. It's moving steadily down towards the sun as it orbits inside us, and only uh, never goes very far from the sun. So it's been fairly separated from the sun. So you can see Mercury quite clearly, but now it's sort of uh, setting earlier and earlier, and it'll disappear into the glare of the sun fairly soon. So you'll lose Mercury. Mm. Um, 
for people that live in built-up areas, which is most of New Zealand, it's an extraordinary thing when you get a really true dark sky. It's shockingly amazing sometimes. And you've had that experience. You went to Great Barrier Island, not oh, yes. far away from oh, Auckland. Oh, yeah, that was a real treat. I was uh, asked to go over there and talk to the local people because the uh, Aotea Great Barrier Island has been made into an international dark sky sanctuary, the first island on Earth to get that rating from the International Dark Sky Association. Uh, it's that sort of rating is valuable to uh, a, because a it inspires people to protect their night sky and keep it dark, mm. um, and also it encourages astrotourism. There's people coming from Europe and Asia down to see our night skies, and they want to see dark, pristine skies. And so having this. Uh, Dark Sky Sanctuary right on Auckland's doorstep, part of Auckland. It's uh, it's stunning. And so it was my first time out there for many decades uh, and uh, I had, uh, during the nights I was there, I had three clear nights and it was astounding. It's easily the darkest sky I've ever seen from sea level. I mean, if you go up higher, um, it's a little different. Mm. Um, but um, the higher you go, there's another phenomenon called air glow that starts to show up once you get to high altitudes. Um, and that sort of is, is a bigger effect when you've got high-altitude observatories and so the, the sky isn't as quite as dark. So it's, it probably appears much darker at sea level, but it was astounding views. I mean, uh, um, I could get back into naked eye astronomy if I <laughs> lived out there. Um, so, it'll, it's uh, yeah, so it's well worth a trip out to the island, apart from all the other natural mm. Um, things that's got fantastic beaches and fishing and natural history. No possums. I didn't realise that Barrier had no possums. Mm. So, um, Just missed them. Yeah. <laughs> Poor things. They uh, couldn't quite swim that far. Yeah. Tried and didn't quite make it. And always worth a reminder that a pair of binoculars is a, just oh. a great piece of equipment. You don't have to have come all like Johnny Astronomer no, with no, your no, big no, telescope, no. do you? Definitely. Binoculars are the best place to start. 7 by 50 or 10 by 50 binoculars. You can pick them up for $100 new. Um, they don't have to be expensive uh, ones by big name mm. things. They're often, the cheaper ones are sometimes actually better for various reasons. Uh, and it don't matter if you drop them in the drink so much. Mm. <laughs> uh, but it's... Uh, <laughs> But anyway, so, yeah, so binoculars are the thing to start with and they give you astounding views. Mm. Liquid water on Mars. This has been the biggest astronomy news this week. Uh, it's got to be under the ground, doesn't it? Because the liquid water doesn't, it just evaporates on, on Mars. Exactly. Yes, exactly. The, the atmosphere of Mars is only 1% as dense as Earth. That's equivalent to being about 40 kilometres above the Earth. If you went 40 kilometres above the Earth, it would be about the same density and temperature as the surface of Mars. Oh. So, and 40 kilometres is a long way up. That's much higher than jet planes normally fly or anything like that. So the atmosphere is very thin, and it's so thin that you can't have liquid water on the surface. If you if you tipped a, you know, some water into a puddle there, it would immediately sort of basically evaporate into the atmosphere and uh, you wouldn't have your puddle on. Um, but, so, yes, yeah, so in order to have liquid water um, on Mars, it has to be underground or, or under something in order to have that. Um, and... What they've been looking at, um, Mars Express, which was uh, ESA's satellite that was launched, uh, arrived in Mars in 2003, so it's been up there 15 years, has been uh, exploring the poles of Mars because we know there's lakes under the ice cap of Antarctica and un in Greenland as well. There mm. are lakes under the ice. Big ones. Big ones, that's right. And, uh, so, and they can persist there for a very, very long time in polar regions. So the logic is if you're going to look for 
uh, liquid water on Mars. It could be in underground caverns, like deep underground, but we've got no way of detecting that. But with ground-penetrating radar that uh, can detect down a, f- a few kilometres through ice, then you can explore what's under the ice caps with that. And that's what the ESA spacecraft has. It's got two big booms, one 20 metres long on each side of the craft, and it pings the surface with the radio transmissions, gets the echoes back, and it can build a picture of what's uh, the, what's underneath the surface it's flying over. And this is particularly true at the poles. So it's uh, over... Well, it's been trying to do it for a long time, but it's, they've really cracked the technology and how to do it properly in the last three years. Um, and uh, so now they've identified... Uh, they, what the radar signals do is they reflect off changes in density. So if you have sort of, say, water and, and soil or water and rock, then it'll get a reflection off that interface. If it's uh, um, ice and water, you'll get a reflection off that. So basically they can look through and see all these little layers. Even going through the ice, we might have a a dusty layer and a clean layer, dusty, clean, dusty, clean, which Mm. is what we have on the poles of Mars. Mm. Then it sees those individual little layers. So it can sort of penetrate and produce a cross-sectional view of it. Anyway, so what they've found is there's a very bright reflection off an object uh, underneath the ice cap, or an area underneath the ice cap, that's something like 20 kilometres across. And by far the best explanation that's on the table is that that is liquid water. It, it is. They know what the reflections off ice look like and rocks look like with this instrument. They've been measuring them for 15 years, so the scientists have a very good handle on that. This is the only place they've seen this particular sort of reflection, and the best explanation by far is that it's a, li- a, a pool of liquid water, a pool sort of like a small lake, mm. well, a, a big lake if you like, uh, on Mars, but on Earth it would be the like, size of Rotorua or a bit smaller than Talpo or something okay. like that. So that's the sort of what we're talking about. They don't know how thick it is. The signal, they get the cinema signal off something that's sort of like is maybe 10 centimetres deep or something, uh, you know, like uh, 100 metres deep. So how much water, volume of water in there is not really known. So And how salty and, is it? Well, that's a very good question because, in fact, at the, te- the calculated temperature down at that level under that ice cap, they can calculate what the temperature should be, and it's, uh, the temperature down there is around, around about minus uh, 70 Celsius. Brr. And at that temperature, you shouldn't, you know, it should be rock solid, you know. But if you add salt to water, then you depress the freezing point. So instead of being freezing around zero or something like that, you can push that down. It can stay liquid for much colder temperatures if you have these other materials mixed into it. Uh, And these are what we call salts, basically. And it's not necessarily just sodium chloride, Mm. common table salt. There's lots of other salts as well. So... um, and there's plenty of evidence that those salts are there um, on Mars. They've been measured in the soil and everything else. So we know that that's all there. So the, by far the best explanation is, therefore, there's a lake that is very salty, briny, maybe maybe 30 times the salinity of the Earth's oceans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and if, if that's true, then that water has been isolated from the basic environment of Mars trapped in that little bubble, if you like, its own bubble, for possibly millions of years. Mm. And in terms of finding life on Mars, uh, it suddenly jumped to the top of the list. Because if you've got long periods of stability where you have liquid water, we know, you know, we've found organisms in the lakes under Antarctica, for example, have been cut off from the uh, global ecosystem for millions of years and they're viable, they've been happy living down there. There's a simple little thing, bacteria 
bacteria and very simple organisms. That'll do. That'll do. Anything will do. I mean, so, and also the possibility is you could go there in the future, drill a hole through and sample water out of that. And that's probably a lot easier than going to Europa or Enceladus. Ah. So it's all of a this sudden... This changed the game, really, hasn't it? It has. It's going to be a big game changer. It's going to become under intense scrutiny. Um, there'll be a lot of uh, interest in getting up a higher resolution uh, radar system that can actually image in more detail. And all the other telescopes and, and equipment they've got in orbit around Mars are going to start focusing on that and getting more information about that particular region of Mars. Um, there was a, a little lander landed. They landed up on the um, sort of the temperate part of Mars, uh, and uh, that was the first time they landed something. NASA landed it there, and it was a. Um, they saw little bubbles of looked like water basically on the surface and that they that was a puzzle they can exist there for a short time but will generally evaporate off so so this is the first sort of you know reasonably convincing demonstration of liquid water on mars uh, other than those little droplets mm. that appeared on the footstep on the uh, landing pads of the uh, lander mm. um so but uh, the saltiness isn't particularly good news for life though was it oh, oh well yeah it depends how adapted uh, things can adapt i mean yeah. there's things living in hot springs in yosemite True. and in rotorua and yeah. these are where the temperature you'd say is is above boiling and they can still exist mm. so that's uh, you know the life can be very adaptable when it has to be a friend of mine invented a gadget to you can tell how salty water is by yelling at it really yeah how does that work it's just an audio thing you can yeah. send audio pulses, and for different similarity, you get different results. Oh, well, okay. So we dig a hole and just shout down the hole. Yeah. Get on to it, Peter. Send something to Mars. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it's, uh, anyway, very exciting possible development there, and it's sort of changed the game. Uh, yeah. So we'll pay attention to the story and uh, report as uh, new stuff comes out for it. Uh, there's the big storm on Mars as well, the dust storm. Gosh, it looks very different from one shot to the next, doesn't it? There's a picture comparison on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Yes, that's right. I mean, so at the moment, uh, it's just unfortunate that when Mars is a, it's one of its prime times to be looking at Mars, that Mars is experiencing a global dust storm, which kind of obscures a lot of the fine details. I think you can still see sort of um, broad, dark and light patches, but mm. the, the level of detail we should be seeing through a telescope uh, is just not really there. Uh, it could take months yet to clear, um, and... Uh, we're just right. We've just gone past the point where Mars was closest to Earth a couple of days ago, and now we're slowly going to be you know, leaving Mars behind, and Mars will be getting smaller in the sky. It's still good for another month, so you know, by all means, get along to an observatory and uh, see it. There's at least another month of good Mars viewing ahead of us. Mm -hmm. How long do these storms last? We, we've well, they, watched them they before, can last we? for many months, six months sometimes. Okay. Um, and uh, and Mars, once it has these storms, they tend to get a life of their own and they envelop the entire planet. That's not something Earth ever sees, but Mars has a different sort of kind of climate and wind pattern and the dust is very fine and once it gets into the atmosphere there, mm. it just hangs around. All right. We've got oceans. They help. Yes. Okay. Uh, the neutrino is the subatomic particle of the year, this year and every year. Uh, they're peculiar things, very hard to grab. You need a thinner mesh net than if you're <laughs> trying to catch white bait. Uh, and they can tell us a lot about stuff if we can just catch them, can't they? Yes. Well, neutrinos are, um, they're, you know, they're 
they're hard to study because they're hard to get hold of. Uh, the sun produces neutrinos from the nuclear action at its core. The universe, lots of processes in the universe produce these ghostly particles. They're travelling through us all the time, only they travel right through our bodies like they didn't exist. They travel right through the Earth like it didn't exist. Uh, and they come out from the centre of stars where there's very high densities and they just travel out as if the materials are there. So they penetrate matter and the universe very well. The, there's a, an experiment down in, in Antarctica under the, in, a, in the ice at the South Pole. They've constructed this big instrument that occupies a cubic kilometre of ice about a kilometre below the surface of the that you'd be standing on. Mm. So, and this instrument's been, they put all these detectors in place that can detect, uh, effectively detect neutrinos. So when a neutrino passes through that cubic kilometre of ice, it, if it, if it very rarely, it'll crash into a nucleus of an atom in that cubic kilometre. So you can imagine there's a lot of atoms in a cubic kilometre and most of the neutrinos never stop there. But if, and then they do, and when they do, they kind of shatter that nucleus and the flash of the, that light, that high-energy light from that collision gets detected by the detector. So they know there's a neutrino gone through and they can say roughly where it's coming from. Um, and astronomers doing this experiment are particularly interested in the really, really high-energy neutrinos. So some neutrinos, like the ones coming out of the sun are relatively low energy but these are enormous energies in these neutrinos and some process in the universe makes them and it's been a huge mystery as to what it is that can do this and uh, you get you know you're down to sort of like supermassive black holes or some process like that that can wind particles up to enormous energies you need something like that so uh, the, the the nub of this story is that the uh, the ice cube experiment detected a a very high energy neutrino come through and they estimated where it would have come from on the sky so they gave astronomers they can tell the which direction yes they can get a rough estimate of the direction um, so astronomers looked up all the energetic things they knew in that area and they zeroed in on uh, one and it turns out to it's a, a, a very distant galaxy about four billion light years away that is known to have at its core what's called a blazar a blazar is just a, a supermassive black hole billions of times the mass of our sun spinning on its axis and as matter falls into it the black hole converts most of that matter into energy and shoots it out its poles and a blazer happens when we are looking straight down the axis of that jet coming by out dumb of luck it. by dumb luck and so so that uh, and that and it turned out that that blazer had s suddenly become active so other observatories like space telescopes looking at uh, x-rays and gamma rays and all sorts of other wavelengths said yes that blazer has been active and it's eaten something yeah it, well it's done something they don't sort of really know what yet it's probably still so sort of theorists are still trying to figure it out but this is a sort of a new era of astronomy where on one hand you've got um signals coming to us via neutrinos uh, which are not light, and on the other hand, you know, we've got all these array of telescopes that can look at other parts of the spectrum and so on. So it's uh, what astronomers call it multi-messenger astronomy because the messengers can either be neutrinos or the particles of light or waves of gravity and so on. Right. So, um, so astronomers now have this huge array of assets to call on. So this is... Um, uh, it was unexpected that a, a blazer, astronomers know about blazers, but didn't think they could do this. But this one, it looks like it probably has. I don't. I wouldn't say it's an absolute certainty. There's still some more work to be done. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's possible over coming months or years that they'll detect more very high energy neutrinos 
from that. I mean, I might say that these neutrinos, there's lots of these high-energy neutrinos coming through. It's just so rare that one actually runs into a nucleus in the Bang ice on. cube experiment that you uh, will actually record one. So most of them pass through us and we don't see them, unfortunately. But So it's, a, it's great that they did detect this one and were able to relate it back to something in the universe that could have detected it. Um, and associated with this is also what are called cosmic rays, which are very high-energy particles. These are things like um, protons, the nucleus of hydrogen atoms, that have also been accelerated up to enormous energies. Mm. Um, and the trouble is that magnetic particles like that, charged particles, feel the magnetic fields in the universe, in the galaxy, in the solar system, and as they come, where they arrive from, or appear to come from in the sky, isn't where they came from. Oh. So they've always associated these very high-energy um, cosmic ray what astronomers generally call cosmic rays, they're actually high-energy particles, they, uh, they, they associate those with some sort of very energetic processes in the universe but can't pinpoint where they've come from because all their pathways have all been wiggly and coming from where they're released because they are affected by magnetic fields. Neutrinos are not, oh. and nor are photons. So light particles and neutrinos tell you the truth. It's about where something's coming from. But light's from. affected by gravity? Light's affected by gravity, but it's a relatively small oh, okay. deviation. Uh, I, you know, it has to go right close to something massive to really de deflect it a lot. A galaxy sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, a galaxy or the core of a galaxy. So, yeah, yeah so, but, yeah, that's true. But, uh, so, you know, this is, a, you know, trying to understand how these cosmic ray particles, these things that are hitting the atmosphere all the time, mm. I mean, a few of them get down to Earth. These are particles that sort of can... Um, injure people in space. So if you're a spaceman going or woman going out to Mars, yeah. you're going to get hit by these particles that our magnetic field generally protects us from. So um, we astronomers have been very keen for many, many decades to understand the processes that produce these uh, high-energy particles. Mm. And I suppose it's the strangest-looking telescope in the world, isn't it? It is. It's, it's the it's coolest a idea. And uh, Dr Jenny Adams, who's a sort of associate professor at Canterbury University, is a key Kiwi part of the science team of that experiment. She uh, talks about it often, and it's a tremendous uh, piece of science. Great stuff. Uh, so's your feature, Grant. So hats off. Thank you very much. And we'll talk again next week. Good seeing you. Thank you very much. I'm going to endeavour to do a magic trick on radio. I'm going to turn one band into another with the click of a thing. Uh, haven't got time to do it now, but stay tuned. I'll see how it goes straight after this info burst. It's called The News. Here it comes at you. Oh, and keep your ears peeled for a double pass to go to the New Zealand International Film Festival. Uh, a wonderful thing. It's nine o'clock. Good evening.